The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I love it in Flint. You're very astute. Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon... They will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Yo. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. 
No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour, and this is, seems kind of appropriate this time of year with Halloween right around the corner, to talk about uh, one of the great filmmakers of all time, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, my guest is the author of two mystery series, one uh, with West Virginia failure analyst Owen Allison and the other featuring Ohio sports writer Lloyd Keaton. But he has a new book, and... Uh, it uh, focuses on the relationship between filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock and the censors. His name is John Bilheimer. He joins me by phone. The book is called Hitchcock and the Censors. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Tom. Um, how emblematic is the shower scene from Psycho in describing how Alfred Hitchcock dealt with and sometimes got around the censors. It's probably almost the best example you could get. It's uh, the shower scene has been voted the, the sort of the most memorable uh single scene in movie history uh, for good reason. But Hitchcock really contrived it just to get around the censors. He took uh 78 bits of film and and assemble them into 45 minutes of, or 45 seconds of real uh, horror. And yet he did it in such a way that he could get past the censors. In those pieces of film, there was not one bit of actual what was would have counted as nudity, and he never shows the the knife piercing Janet Lee's skin. So he could always argue that, well, you know, I'm I'm following your guidelines, and yet the results are just horrific. Uh, um, and the censors themselves, there were five men looking at the the scene, and and the first time through, five of them were, or three of the five were convinced they saw nudity, and two weren't. Um, and so Hitchcock took it back, apologized profusely, said he'd fix it, did nothing sent them back to them, and this time the three that had seen nudity didn't see it. <laughs> and, but brilliant. the two that had did see it, so they were kind of deadlocked, and uh, uh, Hitchcock offered a trade-off. They were, the censors were also concerned with an early, uh, the first scene in the, in the movie where uh, Janet Lee and John Gavin are in bed together. He said, well, you know, if you, if you, uh, uh, I'll edit the, uh, shower scene if you'll give me this scene and they wouldn't do that they said well then i'll leave this shower scene as it is you come in tomorrow and uh tell me how to edit the bedroom scene and uh the censors didn't show up so hitchcock was left with both scenes and the shower scene was really if anything uh uh, contrived in order to get by the censors, you know. Well, yeah, uh, there's so much going on in that scene, John. It, you know, there's the the shower curtain itself acts, acts as a filter. You see a silhouette, which you assume 
is uh, a naked Janet Lee behind the curtain. And then there's the ripping and pulling of that curtain. Oh, yeah. Which seems itself, you know, very telling about the violence of that scene. And then there's, of course, the, the swirl around the drain of, oh, of yeah. blood. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually chocolate syrup, it turns out. He filmed it in black and white because he was afraid that color would be just too gruesome. And... Uh, but it but there's there's a lot going on there and of course um you'd be remiss not to mention the audio and oh, and yeah. the 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 violin stabs that um have become so synonymous with that scene and and you literally think that that's the sound of the knife plunging in and I've I've had people say you know if you if you turn the sound down it practically ruins the scene. Huh. I hadn't tried that, but I'm sure it's true. Yeah. And and that's true of a lot of uh, suspenseful moments in movies. If you take out the the audio track, it all of a sudden becomes um less uh anxious. Mm-hmm. You know, they they build that suspense in you using the music and, of course, what you're looking at. But that, that is an incredibly powerful scene and a great example of just how talented Alfred Hitchcock was, not just of getting around the censors, but of, of telling stories in very creative ways. Oh, yes. Um, he worked in terms of scenes that he had in his mind. He had little care for dialogue or plot and sort of moved from striking scene to striking scene uh, and the um, the shower scene is of course one of the most powerful um, but he was a very very talented man what can you tell me about Alfred Hitchcock's earliest run-ins with the censors well <laughs> yeah you know uh, he started in Britain and uh, so his earliest run-ins were in Britain, but they were really run-ins. In Britain, the censors were more concerned with social issues, strikes, and uh, caste system. And, and uh, uh, he got along very well with the censors, but there is one story that, that he tells. that the, um, the head censor was a man named J. Brooks Wilkinson, and Wilkinson was, uh, <clears throat> compared to the uh, the... Uh, U.S. censors who came later uh, um, uh, was a very easy man to get along with, very uh, very easygoing and very um, uh, concerned. He, he worked hard. He had one drawback, and that was he was gradually going blind. Um, and Hitchcock tells of, of uh, in Britain, the, the director sat with the censors and watched the movies. And Hitchcock says that he always sat on the side of, of Wilkinson's one good eye. And if something dicey came up, he would tap uh, tap Wilkinson on the shoulder and say, Mr. Wilkinson, and Wilkinson would turn to him and <laughs> turn his good eye to Hitchcock, and the blind eye was toward the screen. So so that that's probably, it's, it's hardly a run-in, but it's a good story. His, his, his first, uh, and they're not run-ins either, um, 
his first run-ins or encounters with the censors in America, Joe Breen was the the head of the production code office, uh, and he was kind of a feisty anti-Semite who was hard to get along with, uh, uh, and really wielded his power. Uh, the uh, the first movie Hitchcock worked on was Re- Rebecca, and it's the story uh, Daphne du Maurier, a bestseller story of a man who murders his wife, and uh, but her presence lingers in this uh, mansion he has on the Scottish coast, and uh, um, it uh, the payoff in the uh, book is that uh, Maxim de Winter, the, the husband, his second wife, is just cowed by the pre- the presence of Rebecca, who never really appears in the movie, but it's just, just her ominous presence. And the, one of the, the, the dictum of the, the production code in America that did the most harm to films was that evildoers had to be punished. So David O. Selznick, who was Hitchcock's boss at the time, paid fifty grand for the uh, rights to Rebecca. That was as much as he paid for Gone with the Wind. And then the censors said, "Well, you know, you you can't tell this story this way because uh, in the book, uh, Maxim de Winter gets away with murdering his wife, and we just can't have that." So they went round and round, and Hitchcock finally suggested that, well. Uh, let's have the wife die by accident and have Maxim de Winter do everything that he did in the book, but the wife dies by accident. And that satisfies the censors, but it didn't satisfy Selznick, who said, you know, when we, Rebecca is the story of a man who murders his wife, not the story of a man who who buries a wife who died by accident, or actually sinks the wife uh, in a ship, who in a boat, who, who dies by accident. And he Selznick claimed we, we bought Rebecca, we're going to make Rebecca, but the only way it got made was with this this silly, uh, uh, illogical addendum that that, uh, uh, that the Rebecca died by accident, and Maxim de Winter covered it up. just doesn't make any sense at all, but Hitchcock was clever enough and swept uh, the viewers past that pretty quickly, and got away with it. The film won an Academy Award for the Best Picture, but it just doesn't make any sense. Um, he went on to uh, have a what really you wouldn't wouldn't call them run-ins with censors. He got more and more clever as his reputation grew, and and uh, uh, he would, for instance, submit. Uh, scenes that he knew the censors would take out, so he could bargain with them. He he viewed it as horse trading, <laughs> and uh, uh, there are many scenes that he he would put in, and then say, "Well, I'll take this out, but you've got to give me this other scene that he really wanted." And <clears throat> the, uh, the the censorship was a two-step process. You had to submit your script, and they had to approve that. And then they, you had to submit the movie. And if you didn't get the censor seal of approval, you couldn't show the movie in America between, well, 1934 and 1968, which were Hitchcock's busiest years. More about Hitchcock and the censors with author John Bilheimer straight ahead. Everybody's doing. 
it on a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show more about Hitchcock and the Censors with author John Bilheimer straight ahead. The idea of showing the script first was that the censors could keep you from uh, filming something that you would later have to take out. As Hitchcock advanced in his career and reputation, he would uh, actually leave in stuff that they wanted to take out, particularly dialogue. Um, they they were the censors were crazy about dialogue they they uh they had about i guess uh, in my book i counted up there there's an average of uh 22 and a half objections to uh that he had to answer for every movie he made and um, you know a good three or four of those were always dialogue and uh, there were crazy things like you 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 know that you would imagine that well they would take out the hells and dams but they would also take out words like virgin and canubial or arsenic they took out arsenic because they were afraid that if you uh, told the viewer showed the viewers a specific poison you might be helping any uh, poisoners in the audience so you had to just say poison rather than arsenic anyhow there are all these uh, things that they would ask to be taken out at the script stage, which Hitchcock just left in, uh, particularly if there was dialogue or something easy to film, and then bargain and say, well, you know, I'll take out this word if you give me this scene. And How could you, uh, how could you make arsenic and old lace? <laughs> well, <laughs> with, no, that, that's, that's the question that always comes up. That was, the, that was actually the, uh, the, the title of the movie, or the title of the play, the that it was based on so so you got away with that but but uh yeah it wouldn't quite be the same if you said you couldn't say it wouldn't quite be the same if you said poison and old lace no no (laughs) um we hear the phrase associated with the censors at their heyday um gratuitous sex and violence which was considered to be off limit but what does gratuitous mean? Well, you, you know, nobody quite knew what, uh, uh, nobody quite knew how to interpret this, but it was whatever the censors decided it was. For instance, uh, uh, gratuitous sex was, they, uh, they had, they also had this, uh, they, they, they forbade excessively lustful kissing. Now, nobody knew what that meant, the directors sort of thought that it meant that you can't have lips locked for more, longer than X seconds. Hitchcock thought it was three seconds. Other directors thought it was ten seconds. The censors themselves said, well, we never we never put a stopwatch on kisses. But as, as in the shower scene in, in Psycho, Hitchcock con- concocted a kissing scene in Notorious, in which Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman are standing on, start out on her balcony in Rio de Janeiro, and they start kissing, and the, they work their way into uh, the apartment, and they're constantly kissing, but their lips never uh, touch for more than three seconds at a time. So they're in each other's arms, and they're walking, and they're kissing, but 
the kisses never last more than three seconds. The whole scene lasts uh, nearly three minutes, and but and it was it was uh, sort of the shower scene of its time. Uh, but Hitchcock concocted it just to get around the censors, uh, even though they said they weren't clocking kissing. They, you know, that was that was what the directors thought they were doing, and so effectively that's that's what amounted to lustful kissing and just uh, uh excessive lip locking i can barely say that did did hitchcock get to know the censors and and their sensibilities so well that he could see in a script he was considering to make into a film where the problems were likely to be I think so. Yes, well, uh, definitely. Um, and he created a lot of those problems because he. Um, I think one of the great problems with censorship is not sort of what they take out, but just what never gets made, what never makes it to the screen. Hitchcock chose his uh, his movies, I think, without much regard for censorship, knowing that he could get around them. Breen, the Joe Breen, who uh, was started out as the head of the production code, uh, was a tough guy to get around. Uh, but uh, by the, let's see, when Hitchcock Breen retired, when Hitchcock was making uh, To Catch a Thief, and he was replaced. Breen was replaced by a guy named Jeffrey Sherlock, who was much more accommodating uh, uh, and who liked Hitchcock. And so he got along with Hitchcock and uh, gave him a lot more than Breen would have, particularly in To Catch a Thief, where there's a uh, there's a seduction scene between Cary Grant and Grace Kelly that that uh, gave Breen fits, and then there were other things. Breen started out uh, when when Hitchcock started making the movie. Uh, Breen was in charge and gave him a long list of things he had to take out including the seduction scene and uh, it was kind of an ongoing gag about uh, it's, it's set on the French Riviera and there are a couple of French gendarmes who are following uh, Kelly and Grant around and when they're waiting outside their hotel for instance they're looking at naughty French postcards and uh, Breen insisted that that be taken out and Hitchcock eventually did, but said, well, then you've got to give me the seduction scene. And uh, eventually he got the scene, uh, um, uh, which was fairly explicit for his time uh, with a lot of dialogue. He he managed, he, he had to take out some dialogue. I think Grace Kelly said something like... Uh, Ever had a better offer in your life? Diamonds, excitement, and me. And uh, they took out the diamonds, excitement, and me, and left in better. Ha- ever had a better offer in your life? So he made, you know, he he just made little snipping cuts, and uh, managed to keep the whole scene eventually, or at least the essence of the scene. So, so, but he got along with Sherlock. Uh, uh, Breen's successor quite well, and by that time he was sort of a legend in his own right. So they cut him a lot of slack. With 
Alfred Hitchcock, how much as as he was considering making movies, how much consideration do you think he gave the censors going into it? Um, how much of a part of the process of making a film for Hitchcock was horse trading with the censors? I guess. Well. Um I think a, a lot of it was horse trading with the censors. Uh, it got less and less as, as time went on and Sherlock replaced Breen. But I don't think Hitchcock ever looked at a movie and said, well, I, no, I, I think he must have looked at a movie and said, well, I can't make that. Um, but there's no record of that. Uh, but he would say, well, I knew he knew what he could do and couldn't do. And... Um, I don't recall any, you know, I read a lot of uh, his biographies, a lot of uh, treatments of his movies, and I don't recall him ever saying explicitly, well, I would like to make this, but won't because I can't get it by the censors. He had supreme confidence in his ability to horse trade with the censors and and get anything made he wanted to make. Uh, He may have censored himself and not... not, uh, decided to do a certain uh, uh, property, but uh, there's no real record of that. I mean, I think if he saw something and wanted to make it, he'd figure out a way to make it. Well, because of, the, because of movies like Psycho and The Birds, um, you know, we often think of Hitchcock as being a I don't want to say horror filmmaker, but but certainly a, a maker of thriller films, and and we associate him with that. But what was, how would Hitchcock have characterized his own body of work? Well, I don't. I mean, he he clearly was interested in suspense and uh, rather than horror. It's just sort of what what would ring the audience's bell or what would ring out their emotions? Uh, not necessarily horror, uh, you know, uh, a uh, uh, no, I, I, Jeopardy in a cornfield. Uh, you know, that's not horror. That's pure suspense. Yeah, and that I think suspense sense. is the better word, John. I, I, a thriller didn't quite make it, but suspense is a much better way to put it. Um but do you think he thought about and and wanted to make things that might startle or frighten people? Well, I I think he worked to uh, get as many suspenseful scenes into a movie as he could. That was his bread and butter. That uh, is what he is known for. As I say, plot didn't much matter to him. This whole cornfield thing didn't make any sense at all you know he he was in a hotel room with with uh, the master villain and the master villain's mistress and they could have done him in at any time and but, but instead they send him out to this cornfield and, and he's attacked by a crop duster that's not dusting crops I you know and that is really a, a gripping scene um, and then there's the scene on Mount Rushmore, where, um, which he actually had to reconstruct uh, most of it in the studio because 
Department of the Interior didn't want him shooting guns on Mount Rushmore or or uh, doing anything. It was it was uh, Hitchcock's idea that he would have uh, Cary Grant hide in Lincoln's nose and sneeze, and uh, <laughs> uh, they never got to do that because uh, they they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't they they insisted that these the uh, protagonists stay or just on the outside of the the huge faces and, and uh, uh, not not shoot off guns it, it was uh, there were <clears throat> in fact he was he was he encountered those kinds of restrictions from different agencies throughout his career it wasn't only the censors in the production code office he had to deal with the with the uh, oh the humane department when he was Working on birds and the uh, Office of War Information when he was working on uh, foreign correspondent and lifeboat, uh, uh, but he, ma- he managed, you know, he managed to get what he wanted done, and he, and he really, if you look at what he cut out, he sacrificed very little, uh, he, and his the the most harm that was done to his movies was this dictum that you can't. Uh, it, the evildoers must be punished. Uh, that that uh, as I say, it, it hurt Rebecca in my mind, but not in the minds of most viewers. He managed to skate people right by the logic of it. Uh, but there were other like uh, in Strangers on a Train, which is this crisscross murder. Right, uh, right. Um, in the book, uh, the this the. You know the the villain Bruno does uh, kill the hero's wife, but then in the book the hero kills the villain's husband. Well, you couldn't have that happen, so the crisscross murder doesn't get done in, in the movie. Um, and there are other instances where Gary Grant's absolved of guilt and suspicion, and uh, there are other things where where the plot. Uh, uh, is altered so that evildoers can't get away with it, and that hurt, I think, a number of his films. But but he still, you know, got the suspenseful scenes in that he wanted in. So, how much of a role did the casting play in appeasing censors? In in other words. Hard to think of Cary Grant as being a real evil guy. No, um, in fact, <clears throat> you know, you asked about Hitchcock earlier. When he first came to Hollywood, he didn't get the casts he wanted. And if there's any criticism of his early movies, it's that some of the stars just weren't up to Cary Grant's level. Uh, but the idea that Cary Grant couldn't be a murderer, that, you know, his own, uh, the, the producers themselves worked to make sure that Cary Grant didn't appear as a murderer. Um, and so part of the suspicion, which was, it's the first film, Hitchcock uh, worked with Grant, Grant is uh, appeared to be a murderer, and the book he w- actually was a murderer, uh, but uh, so there are all these instances where it appears that Grant has uh, murdered a friend or uh, has 
has uh, done some dishonest things to get money and uh, was likely to kill his wife, Jim Fontaine. And then it all turns out that, you know, none of these things really happened or you you had been interpreting them wrong and uh, Grant wasn't a murderer after all. Go go ahead. No, no, no. Finish your thought, John. No, I I was going to say the way Hitchcock, and, and he said he wanted... The way he wanted to end that uh, was uh, Grant brings a bottle of uh, a glass of poison milk up to Joan Fontaine, and uh, who is pretty who thinks it's poison, and in the book she actually drinks it. uh, In and uh, Hitchcock's idea was that uh, yes, that, that she drinks the milk, but she gives. Grant a letter to mail to her mother, uh, which says, you know, I I love this man, but I don't want him to harm anyone else. So she tells what's happened, and and <clears throat> uh, before she drinks the milk, she asks Grant to mail the letter. And the last scene is Grant mailing this letter, which is incriminating, <clears throat> which isn't the whole idea wasn't very convincing, and just having uh, the idea that that. Uh, Joan Fontaine would take this poison out of love for her husband is is ludicrous and and I guess they filmed a version of that and and it just didn't sit well with the screening audience but but Hitchcock's idea was that that uh, Grant would mail this you would end with Grant mailing an incriminating letter the ultimately it just turns out that the uh, everything you had seen that incriminated Grant could be explained away and he really loved Joan Fontaine, and they uh, they presumably lived happily ever after. <laughs> God knows she should have been looking over her shoulder. A typical Hollywood ending. Yeah. Um, they all live happily ever after. In this day and age, when films are cut and edited for final release, there are a lot of scenes taken out, some for time, some for pacing and all that. And then later, there appear on on various online and and cable opportunities a chance to see what they call a director's cut. Would there there have ever been a, a Hitchcock director's cut of anything where he could, you know, put scenes back in you could see never before scenes do those exist anywhere or was he just so good at this that there wasn't enough cut to do that with no he he was pretty good um he put in what he wanted to put in and and in fact selznick who is first boss in america uh, always wanted to get involved in the cutting himself but he couldn't he, he found that Hitchcock had, had done such a j- good job of just filming that that there was nothing there wasn't a lot Selznick could mess with. Now there are a couple of movies. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on the, I'm blanking on the name of the film that was based on Leon Uris's book, uh, where Hitchcock filmed alternate ending, endings. Uh, and uh, those those endings still exist and have been included in uh, uh, the the DVDs of the movie. Um, but 
the idea that Hitchcock had a scene that would, he had to cut out, uh, it just or or versions of a scene, uh, <clears throat> they 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 were just left on the cutting room floor. There was a, a you know I talked about Psycho. There was one that Hitchcock had intended to end that uh, that shower scene with a an overhead shot of Janet Lee draped across the tub, but that showed her bare buttocks, so that was actually taken out. But I, I think what the the ending that he has with that that eye eyeball uh, 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 um, was much more effective, and uh, that that he had to cut a little early because his his wife. Uh, Noticed that Janet Lee blinked imperceptibly, so he, he had to cut that a little sooner than he wanted to. You know, there's, um, John, there's a, a scene in the movie To Have and Have Not, and I'm not sure who made that, that film, but. Howard Hawks. Yeah, there's there's a scene, and it, it always kind of epitomizes for me how great directors can craft a scene um, that imparts the violence they want to show without doing blood and gore and guts the way they do today, where Humphrey Bogart shoots some bad guys with a gun that's sitting in a desk drawer. And in order to capture the violence of it, they show the front of the desk being blown out rather than showing the guys getting hit by bullets and I don't know if you remember the scene or are familiar with the scene no I, I, I don't I, I should the, the, the part of to have and have not that I remember is is where Hawks uh, Hawks is, is toying with the, <clears throat> it's not it's uh, you didn't show sex but but you know if you want me just whistle and uh, you know how to whistle don't you um, that's pretty racy dialogue that got by the censors. Well, and a lot of that, a lot of the credit for that goes to um, uh, Lauren Bacall's read. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, if anybody else said those things, it wouldn't be nearly as provocative <laughs> as it was when she said it. Oh, no, um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It, more about Hitchcock and the Censors with author John Bilheimer straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com the Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Summer program.com 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Hitchcock and the Censors with author John Bilheimer straight ahead. Some of the actors, um, and, and, and I'm thinking of the, of the choices in The Birds, um, seemed, I, I don't know, um, maybe a little stiff for the storyline. You know, I'm thinking of Rod Taylor. He didn't. He didn't seem to fit in in the whole Hitchcock world. No, um, I think that's right. I I don't recall. You know, of course, Tippi Hedren. That was her first movie, and she, I think, is stiff. Uh, um, I was going to mention uh, her too, but but I thought it was even more true of of Rod yeah, Taylor. Yeah, uh, Taylor is not. Well, he's not a total loss, and I think that I, I think uh, the stars, of the films of birds, and there are some like uh, Jessica Tandy is just a very competent actress, um, and uh, so you know the supporting characters are all good, and uh, the it's, I thought Plachette was great. Oh yes, yes she was, and. Uh, uh, what what was it? There's something. Oh, I, I was trying to think. There was uh, a, a story that that he, Tippy Hedren always claimed that uh, that horrible scene in the attic uh, was Hitchcock designed just to uh, uh, to uh, inflict terror on her and. Um, it's hard to it's hard to credit that story because uh, originally the, uh, the the scene was written just as it played, but it was supposed to be Plachette that was in the attic, and and uh, and anyhow that uh, that's a. I saw a, a real interesting interview with uh, Alfred Hitchcock one time, where the interviewer asked him if it was true that he said actors were cattle and Hitchcock replied said no I would never say anything like that he said what I said was actors should be treated like cattle <laughs> yes no uh, that and uh, there's a good story about uh, Carol Lombard who was starred in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith which was uh, kind of a, uh, a romantic comedy is not not in Hitchcock's vein but uh uh, he always wanted to work with Carol Lombard, and so on the first day on the set, uh, Carol Lombard had uh, had uh, arranged to have three cows in a corral, and each cow had a uh, a little a little placard on it with the names of the three stars: Carol Lombard and Ralph Montgomery, <laughs> and uh, I think Gene Raymond. Um, so <laughs> was, that's funny. It was her 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 joke on Hitchcock because that. That, uh, uh, that that saying of his, that, or the if he ever said it, but it, but the actors should be treated like cattle, uh, had, had preceded him to America. Um, the name of the book is uh, Hitchcock and the Censors. It's written by my guest John Bilheimer. John, we're we're almost out of time, but but I'm I'm curious. 
why, how did you decide to write the book Hitchcock and the Censors? Was Hitchcock the best at doing the uh, the tango with uh, the censors? Because uh, I would think other filmmakers had just as much of a challenge as Hitchcock did. Well, I'd always been a Hitchcock fan. I, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia. I was an usher in the theater. The first Hitchcock film I saw was uh, Dial M for Murder. And uh, you could just hear the audience uh, gasp when uh, I don't know whether, when the villain falls on a knife and you see the knife plunge in to his back uh, um, and I always liked Hitchcock and I just happened to be I uh, was I write mysteries and and uh, mystery writer friend of mine we were in LA together at a conference and she wanted to go to the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills because her protagonist was a screenwriter uh, from the 40s, and so she had research to do. And I had a car, so I drove her and just knocked around the library. And I, I started looking at what they had. And it turns out they had all the correspondence between Hitchcock and, and the censors. You know, everything the censors asked of Hitchcock and how he answered. And then, of course, you had the films themselves. And I just got fascinated. I, I, uh, uh, so I just went through all his films and, and chronicled what they wanted, what he gave them, and and it became obvious uh, the, this little they called it a tango, uh, which it really was. It was a dance. He, you know, he he it was something he anticipated, and by the by the end of his career, it was it, it was just it it was just something he had to do. Or, you know, it was it was a minor nuisance. It was like. Uh, a tight budget or a method actor, but it was something that uh, he even claimed at one point that he actually looked forward to it, the, the horse trading. But it, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a god awful waste of his time. Uh, but in some cases, I mean, you wouldn't have the shower scene from Psycho if it weren't for the censors, you know, because he concocted that just to get around the censors. And it's the same with this kissing scene, in Notorious. Uh, um, he did a lot. Uh, a lot. A lot of what showed up on the screen uh, was really done uh, to uh, uh, just to bamboozle the censors. Well, I'm I'm glad that you uh, found yourself um, killing time at the library and discovered these communications because this is a great idea for a book, and I'm so glad that you were willing to spend some time and, and share some of your observations uh, from the book with me and the listeners this morning, John. And um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, more about the book, more about your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, John? I do. It's just com. Uh, so that's probably the best place to go. Well, John, thank you so much for spending this time with me, and uh, keep up the good work. Okay. Thank you, Tom. It was nice talking to you. All right. Take care. Bye. And with that, we'll, uh, well, I'll just uh, remind you, that was John Billheimer. He is uh, the author of a new book called Hitchcock and the Censors, and we'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner Program. Straight ahead.
wash my hands I don't touch my face I stay at home Shelter in place Social distance Don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves Stay away from church Should I sneeze? I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart. That is the rule. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands. Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see Two more weeks of quarantine Will be the death of me a trip to the grocery store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is 16 honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be. Death of me, the death of me. You know they say this is war, but we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bat soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized <laughs> as soon as I regained consciousness. From the Tom Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs>